Like most of you, I have a strong interest in the free market and Austrian economics. And like many, if not most of you, I have also long been deeply interested in libertarianism and libertarian theory and philosophy in general. And perhaps for this reason, I find the links and connections between Austrian economics and libertarianism fascinating. What links are there? Well, for one, because Austrian economics, as you're discovering, is such a sound and powerful way of understanding the implications of human action. Libertarians who are knowledgeable in Austrian economics tend to be more principled libertarians and to have better arguments. And because people tend to be decent and civilized, and they want prosperity and peace, once they understand basic economics, they tend to veer it in a libertarian direction. They realize that free markets and private property rights support these values and goals. And this is probably the reason that there's a tendency for Austrians to be libertarians. Mises himself, the greatest of Austrian economists, was also a great liberal thinker. And this is one reason I personally believe economic education is so important, because economically literate people tend to be more libertarian. And economics itself, in analyzing market exchange, can benefit from libertarian insights on property rights, since the notion of market exchange is exchange of owned property. And it is political philosophy which establishes what ownership rights there should be. So for these reasons, I often describe myself as an Austro-anarchist libertarian. Now, in libertarian theory, my personal strong interest has always been and remains basic rights theory. What are our rights, and how do we show this? And there are also many fascinating related areas of libertarian legal theory, such as the theory of contracts, causation and responsibility, and so on. Now, intellectual property, in particular patent and copyright law, was never my strongest interest from a theoretical point of view, and yet here I am. Uh, it turns out that there are not many Austro-anarchist libertarian patent attorneys out there. <laughs> um, but ever since I was a libertarian, say from around age 18, which is about 25 years ago now, um, the IP issue always nagged at me. Um, I was never satisfied with Ayn Rand's justifications for it. Her argument seems to be a bizarre mixture of utilitarianism with some overwrought deification of the creator. Not, not the creator up there, but man, the creator in all caps. So I kept trying to find a better justification for IP, and I kept doing this even though I hit roadblocks. I kept trying this, hunting for a way to justify IP, even after I started practicing patent law in 1992. Now, many of you may have at one point abandoned minarchism in favor of anarchy, when you finally realize that even limited government, even if it's possible, which I doubt, is unlibertarian. And it was like this also for me with respect to IP. I finally realized that the reason I couldn't find a way to justify IP was because it's unlibertarian. Um, we libertarians already realize that many so-called intellectual rights, such as the right to a reputation, protected by defamation law, is illegitimate. Why would we believe that artificial rights that are solely the product of legislation, that's the decrees of a, the fake lawmaking wing of a criminal state, would be valid? Sure, you can point to hundreds of obviously ridiculous patents hundreds of obviously outrageous abuses of the system. There are absurd patents on ways of swinging faster than light communication. There are $100 million or $1 billion uh, uh, patent lawsuits almost every year. There are millions of dollars in damages awarded against consumers for downloading a few songs. The terms of patents, uh, especially copyrights, are ridiculously long and arbitrary. And copyright is even received automatically, even if you don't apply for it. And it's very sticky and almost impossible to get rid of, even if you don't want it. And it's also true that the patent office is an inefficient government bureaucracy, bureaucracy and the laws are ambiguous and vague. So there are plenty of fairly mainstream or, or understandable reasons to oppose the current IP system or abuses in the system and to advocate reform, which is pretty common. But I became and remain opposed not just to ridiculous patents and outrageous lawsuits based on them, but to patent and copyright in principle, root and branch. I mentioned before I was never the most passionate about IP theory, but what I found in writing on this and thinking about it is that understanding how to view IP requires a thoroughly principled, coherent libertarian understanding of many areas of libertarian theory and informed by Austrian economics. It requires a clear understanding of areas such as the nature and justification of property rights, homesteading, contract theory, and fraud. So what I'll do now is 
do a brief sketch, briefly sketch out my view of what the libertarian framework is, and then return to IP. And uh, what I'm going to speak about now is out, uh, elaborated in further detail in my chapter in the book that was published last night, the uh, Hans Hoppe's Festschrift, if, uh, if you'd like to read up on the following in more detail. So what is the essence of our libertarianism? It's been said that libertarianism is about individual rights. It's about property rights, the free market, capitalism, justice, the non-aggression principle, or axiom. But most of these terms don't seem to be appropriate. Capitalism and the free market describe the catalactic conditions that arise or are permitted on the, on the libertarian society, but not really all of the libertarian society. What about the ideas of individual rights and justice and aggression? Is this what uh, defines libertarianism? Well, the problem with these terms is they are derivative. They're all de defined in terms of property rights. As Murray Rothbard explained, all rights are property rights. And so, so it's not about individual rights unless you understand them as property rights. Justice is giving someone his due. But what your due is depends upon what your rights are. Because what you, your rights are determines what you're owed, and that's what you're due. So justice is also a derivative of the concept of property rights. The non-aggression principle itself is also dependent on property rights. If you hit me, it's aggression because I have a property right in my body. If I take from you an apple that you're holding, it's trespass or aggression only if or because you own the apple. If it's my apple, it's not trespass. So to identify an act of aggression is to implicitly assign a corresponding property right in the victim of the act of aggression. This is why it is better to refer, in my opinion, to the non-aggression principle instead of the non-aggression axiom. So we have property rights left. Is property rights what distinguishes libertarianism from other, other political philosophies? Well, not, not merely belief in property rights. Why is this? A property right is merely the exclusive right to control a scarce resource. Property rights just specify who owns or who has the right to control scarce resources. But any given system of property rights in any system assigns a particular owner to every scarce resource. Everyone has some view of property rights, every individual, every political theory and system. None of the various forms of socialism really de deny property rights. Each form of socialism specifies an owner for every scarce resource. If the state nationalizes an industry, it is asserting ownership of these means of production. If the state taxes you, it is implicitly asserting ownership of the funds taken. Right? If my land is transferred to a private developer by eminent domain statutes, the developer is now the owner. The legal system that permits this is specifying who the owner of my land is. It is now the, the new shopping center. If the law allows a recipient of racial discrimination to sue his employer for a sum of money, now he's the, he's the owner of the money. So every system does specify owners. Even the private thief who steals something of yours is implicitly acting on the maxim that he has the right to control it, that he is its owner. He doesn't deny property rights. He just differs from the libertarian as to who the owner is. In fact, as Adam Smith observed, if there is, quote, if there is any society among robbers and murderers, they must at least, according to this trite observation, abstain from robbing and murdering one another, end quote. So protection of and respect for property rights is not unique to libertarianism. What is distinctive about libertarianism is its particular property assignment rules. Our view as to who the owner is of each contestable resource and how we determine this. So what are the libertarian property assignment rules that distinguish our philosophy from others? Well, first it's important to recognize that there are two types of scarce resources, human bodies and external resources found in the world. We need to consider the property assignment rules for these two cases separately. First, the body. Of course your body is a scarce resource. As Professor Hoppe has explained, even in a paradise-like land of, of superabundance of goods, quote, every person's physical body would still be a scarce resource and thus the need for the establishment of property rules. In other words, rules regarding people's bodies would exist. One is not used to thinking of one's own body in terms of a scarce good, but in imagining the most ideal situation one could ever hope for, the Garden of Eden, it becomes possible to realize that one's body is indeed the prototype of a scarce good for the use of which property rights 
in other words, the rights of exclusive ownership, somehow have to be established in order to avoid clashes, end quote. So in other words, every person has and controls and is identified and associated with a unique human body, which is a scarce resource. So the libertarian view is very simple. Each person completely owns his own body, at least initially, until something changes this, such as the commission of an act of crime by which you may forfeit some rights in your body. Now, it is true that some people object to the uh, idea that self-ownership, they say that it makes no sense. It's an incoherent idea. You are yourself. You can't own yourself. In my opinion, this is just a verbal wordplay. If A wants to have sex with B's body, whose decision is it? Who has the right to decide, the right to control B's body? Is it B or is it A? If it's A, then A owns B's body and has the right to control it as a master with a slave. If it is B, then B owns B's body. B is a self-owner. And this is the libertarian view. Each person is a self-owner. And of course, this is what is implied in the non-aggression principle as applied to bodies. As Ayn Rand famously said, so long as men desire to live together, no man may initiate, no man may start the use of physical force against others. Now, to initiate force means to invade the borders of someone's body, to use their body without permission or consent. But this implies that the person has the right to control his body. Otherwise, his permission would not be needed, and it would not be aggression to invade or use his body without his consent. So the libertarian property assignment rules for bodies is each person owns his body. And this rule might seem obvious, and especially to us, but it is really held only by libertarians. Non-libertarians do not believe in complete self-ownership. Yes, they usually grant that each person has some rights in his own body, but they believe that each person is partially owned by some other person or entity, usually the state. In other words, we are the only ones who oppose slavery. If you are a non-libertarian, you are in favor of at least partial slavery. This partial slavery is implicit in state actions and laws, such as taxation, conscription, and drug prohibitions, for example. The libertarian says that each person is the full owner of his body. He has the right to control his body, to decide whether or not to join an army, to ingest narcotics, and so on. But those who believe in these types of laws believe the state is at least a partial owner of the body of the people subject to those laws. They don't like to say they believe in slavery, but they do. The liberal wants tax evaders put in jail or enslaved. The conservative wants marijuana users enslaved. So we libertarians believe in self-ownership. Everyone else advocates some form of slavery. Now, I don't here have time to go into a justification of this defense, but I am attempting to describe what our libertarian view is. So what about external objects? The key difference is, unlike our bodies, external things are initially unowned. They exist in the state of nature with no owner. And the libertarian view here is also very simple. The owner of a given scarce resource is the person who first homesteads it, or someone who can trace his title back contractually to the homesteader. And our view is that this person has a better claim to the property than anyone else who wants the property. Everyone else is a latecomer. They come after they're a latecomer with respect to the first possessor or the current owner. And if you think about it, the latecomer rule is actually implied in the very idea of owning property. Because if an earlier possessor of property did not have a better claim than some second person who wants to take the property from him, why does the second person have a better claim than a third person who comes later still? In other words, to deny the crucial significance of what Hoppe calls the prior-later distinction is to deny property rights altogether. Every non-libertarian view is thus incoherent because it presupposes the prior-later distinction when it assigns ownership to a given person because it says that the person has a better claim than late-coming claimants. But it acts contrary to this principle whenever it takes property from the original homesteader and assigns it to some latecomer. But what is relevant for our purposes is describing what the libertarian position is, not pointing out the incoherence of competing views. So in sum, the libertarian position on property rights is that in any dispute or contest over any particular scarce resource, the original homesteader, the person who appropriated the resource from its unknown status by embordering or transforming it, or his descendant in title, has a better claim than latecomers, better claim than those who did not appropriate the scarce resource.
So now let's return to IP. Given this libertarian understanding of property rights, the idea of copyright and patent are simply indefensible. There are other types of intellectual property, trademarks, trade secrets, special rights like boat hole designs and semiconductor mask work protection. Um, I will focus on copyright and patent here, and I'm going to briefly just say what they are. A patent is a grant by the state that permits the patentee, person who receives the grant, to use the state's court system to prohibit someone, someone else, from using their own property in certain ways, from reconfiguring the property according to a certain pattern or design described in the patent, for example, or from using the property in a certain sequence of steps described in the patent. A copyright is a grant by the state that permits the copyright holder to prevent others from using their own ink and paper, for example, in certain ways. Now, in both cases, the state is assigning to A a right to control B's property. A can tell B not to do certain things with B's own property. And this clearly cannot be justified under libertarian principles. B already owns his property. With respect to him, A is a latecomer. B is the one who appropriated the property, not A. It is too late for A to homestead B's property. B already did that. The resource is no longer unowned. So a clear understanding of libertarian property rights can easily show that IP is clearly unjustified. So why is this a contested issue? Why do some libertarians still believe in intellectual property rights? Well, one reason is many of them approach libertarianism from a utilitarian point of view instead of a principled one. These so-called libertarians are in favor of laws that increase overall utility or wealth. And they believe the state's propaganda that state-granted IP rights actually do increase overall wealth. Now, the utilitarian perspective is bad enough because all sorts of terrible policies could be justified this way. Why not take half of Bill Gates' money and give it to the poor? After all, wouldn't the sum total of the welfare gains of the thousands of enriched poor people be far greater than the slight decline in Bill Gates' utility? After all, he would still be a billionaire. If a man is extremely desperate for sex, couldn't his gain be greater than the loss suffered by some rape victims, such as a prostitute, for example? So by utilitarian reasoning, you can get some truly unlibertarian results. But even if we ignore the ethical problems with utilitarianism and the methodological problems that, which Austrian economics helps to highlight, it is bizarre that libertarians are still in favor of IP even on utilitarian grounds when they have not demonstrated that IP does increase overall wealth, even by their standards. There is no doubt that the IP system imposes significant costs on the economy in money terms alone, not to mention costs in terms of liberty. The argument that the incentive provided by IP law stimulates additional innovation and creativity has not even been proven. It is possible that the patent system costs billions of dollars in attorney's fees and uh, defensive maneuvering and things like this and decreases innovation to boot, adding a second cost to it. But even if we assume that the patent and copyright system do stimulate extra valuable marginal innovation and creativity, it has still not been shown that the value of this extra creativity is greater than the cost of the patent system. If you ask an advocate of IP, well, how do you know there's a net gain? You're just met with silence. This is especially true of patent attorneys. They, have, um, they cannot point to any study that supports them. So far as I've been able to tell, every study that I've ever seen that attempts to tally the costs and benefits of copyright or patent law either concludes that uh, the laws cost more than they're worth or that they actually reduce innovation or the study is inconclusive. There are no studies that I'm aware of showing a net gain. They're only repetitions of state propaganda. Anyone who buys into utilitarianism should, based upon the evidence available, be against IP. Now, another reason that many libertarians favor intellectual property is because of confusion about how, how property rights are assigned. They believe you can come to own things in three ways, and in the literature you'll see this, this repeated on occasion. You can come to own something by homesteading it, or by contractual exchange, or by creating it. So the mistake here is in assuming that creation is a third independent source of ownership. It's easy to see that it's not. Creation is, not, is neither necessary nor sufficient for ownership. For example, if you carve a statue in a big hunk of marble that you own, 
You own the resulting creation, the statue. But why? Because you already own the marble. You've just transformed what you owned. So you owned it already. So the idea of creation being a source of property rights is not necessary in this case to give you ownership of the resulting statue. On the other hand, suppose you steal your neighbor's marble and you carve a statue in it. You do not, you do not, do not own the resulting statue, so it's not sufficient. If you're an employee and you're paid to carve a statue in the employer's hunk of marble, you still don't own it. still not sufficient. So if you homestead an unowned resource, like a field, let's say, and you own it, you own it because you're the first user and you have a better claim than anyone that comes after. When you establish visible borders, you homestead the thing. So creation is not necessary here either. Now, some have argued that homesteading involves your labor and mental effort, and therefore this is an act of creation. Now, I think this is torturing the language a little bit. Um, even if you do this and you say that transforming or embordering an unknown scarce resource is a type of creation, this only means that creativity plays a role in the homesteading of unowned scarce resources. It would never imply that thinking of a creative way to use your own property, right, lets you rehomestead already owned property owned by other people. Okay? Now, it is true that creation is an important means of increasing wealth. And this is, this is, I think, what confuses some people. As Professor Hoppe has observed, quote, one can acquire and increase wealth through either through homesteading, production, and contractual exchange, or by expropriating and exploiting homesteaders, producers, and contractual exchangers. There are no other ways. Now, production or creativity or creating something, it is a means of gaining wealth, but it's not an independent source of ownership of rights. Production is not the creation of new matter or new things that can be owned. Production is the transformation of things from one form to another, things that you already own. Otherwise, you would not have the right to transform them. So using your labor and your creativity to transform your property into more valuable finished products gives you greater wealth, but not additional property rights. So the idea that you own anything you create is a confusion, and it does not justify IP. Now, the other justifications uh, offered for IP is that some form of copyright or possibly patent could be created by some kind of contractual trick. For example, by the seller stamping the product he sells to a buyer on the condition that it not be copied. Um, it's argued that this could create a simulation or a subset or a type of patent or copyright system. Um, and However, this is an example of another way that a sound understanding of coherent Austrian-influenced and inspired libertarian principles can help you keep straight on this. For example, most people that write this way have a sort of vague understanding of the proper theory of contract. They just sort of buy into the mainstream idea that you can bind yourself by promising to do something. But the Austro-Libertarian view is the title transfer theory of contract espoused by Williams and Evers, elaborated by Murray Rothbard. And under this theory, which is implied in the very idea that property rights are rights in scarce resources, the owner of a scarce resource has the right to control it and do what he wants with it. One of those things is to sell the property to someone else, to give it away to someone else. Contracts are simply networks or webs of contractual exchanges, transferring my ownership of this scarce resource to someone else, maybe in exchange for them doing something for me or in exchange for them transferring their property to me. So the problem is that if you try to use contract, it only binds the two parties to the contract. And it doesn't even really bind them. It just transfers title between them. But IP, to be effective, has to be good against the world, not against just the two parties to a contract, but against, against third parties as well. So, for example, uh, if Brown sees a mousetrap that Green has purchased, let's assume Green is obligated somehow to pay a million dollars damages to the seller if he reveals the secret or if he copies it. Well, if Brown sees that mousetrap, uh, 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 even if Green has agreed to, to keep it secret, Brown never did agree with the seller. There's no privity of contract, we would say, or there's no contract between them. So there's really no way to ensnare third parties by using a contract scheme. So the contract approach fails as well. And so in closing, let me mention one other final problem with intellectual property. 
And this is yet another one that is informed by Austro-Libertarian insights, such as the insights about the uh, problems with legislation as a method of making law, in addition to the fact that legislation requires a state. And the thing is that, especially with patent and copyright law, it is literally inconceivable to imagine these things arising on a free market. They are purely creatures of legislation and state action. Legislation requires a legislature, and it requires, which requires a state. So in other words, the anarcho-libertarian, the principled libertarian, cannot support IP in any case. With that, I'll conclude my talk, and I am open for questions. Yes. I just want a little comment, and I actually had a big argument on a forum last February. I was arguing with some people, uh, some minarchists. I'm an anarchist. The minarchists uh, on the Paul forum, and they were saying that like uh, you needed to have IP, or else basically uh, no one would invest that. X. And I said, like from a practical point of view, that makes no sense because you're always going to pursue uh, a profitable idea, no matter whether you have a, a violent monopoly on that, and that doesn't even go into other stuff like open source, other avenues. I just thought I'd. Yeah. So the question in the comment was that um, some minarchist uh, that the questioner discussed with uh, wanted to know what incentive there would be to produce in the absence of a state-granted monopoly. And um, I think there's several ways to approach that kind of question. The, the principled approach is that that's irrelevant. Uh, I mean, the goal of law is to protect property rights. And it's clear that IP trespasses against property rights. So that's the end of the story as a principled point of view. Um, for those who approach, they wonder about consequences, they're curious about consequences and how the free market would um, uh, function in the absence of these laws, or for utilitarians who base their standards on that. Well, first, there is an excellent book. It's called Against Intellectual Monopoly by um, Michele Boldrin and David Levine, which addresses a lot of the more practical consequences like this and discusses over and over again how private uh, alternatives could um, uh, would flourish in the absence of these laws and how pretty much most innovation would be even better. Um, but I would argue that, you know, um, e even if the assumption of the question is correct and that IP laws do say add some extra stimulus to innovate, well, how much is enough, right? There's always an arbitrary cutoff. I mean, we have a hundred and something year copyright term and a roughly 17 year patent term now. Well, we could make it a thousand years. So these guys don't have, or, and, or we could increase the penalties. We could impose the death penalty for violating copyright and patent. I mean, if they really are serious about doing anything, regardless of the cost, to stimulate innovation, uh, why don't they advocate further? Uh, it's just sort of like the minimum wage. You know, the people that think the minimum wage is a good idea, why don't they, why don't they advocate a $1,000 minimum wage? All right? Uh, so, uh, yes. Um, the critique of IP doesn't... Uh, uh, concern the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum. I think that that is more the application of the basic libertarian principle of homesteading. I, so I think that is another, um, uh, that does require some more work because that's sort of a difficult, tricky issue. There, 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 there are arguments on both sides that, um, uh, that the electromagnetic spectrum is, a, is, a scarce, is not a scarce resource, really. That when you perturb the EM spectrum by generating a signal, um, you're just sending it out there. And if someone else does it two miles away and interferes with your signal, then you're both just doing something you have the right to do. Uh, others see the spectrum, and I, I, I lean this way, like an airway or like an, a, a, a path or a right-of-way um, as a scarce resource because by its nature it can only be used by one person at a time. One person's use can exclude the use of another person. Um, and there is a, a pretty good book on this, by the way, by David Kelly and Roger uh, Donway, which is fairly old by now. It's called Laissez Parleur, uh, Freedom in the Electronic uh, Spectrum. And it talks about how in the common law, before the FCC came about, uh, there were uh, common law recognition of airwave rights starting to be recognized before the FCC basically um, uh, monopolized the entire field. Yes, ma'am. Um, in, in, my, in my opinion, uh, uh, if you own property and someone else can show a better title to it, then they should get the property. So if a particular Native American can trace his claim back to his ancestor and show that his land was taken by your ancestor in title, 
yes, he has the right to the property. Now, in, uh, I think that as a practical matter, the older these uh, issues get, uh, the less and less likely that there could be evidence to, to do it, uh, to, to prove the case. Um, but sure, I mean, even now, when you, buy, when, you, when you buy your home, you get title insurance, right? And that's an insurance policy that you take out in case there's a defect in the opinion of the title attorney um, saying that the seller had the right to own the land and sell it to you. So even now, you could be ousted by someone with a better claim. If you buy land, for example, from someone who you think has title and they don't, then you could be ousted. And then your title insurance would come in and cover you. And so I think that type of uh, policy would be more widespread in a, in a, under this homesteading rule. Yes? Um, would that assume that the original I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Yeah. Um, how do you know that the original owner would pass it on along genetic lines? Oh, no. When I say uh, the question was how do we know that uh, title is passed along and um, along genetic lines, uh, when I say descendant or ascendant in title, that doesn't refer to family lines. That's a, a legal term that means uh, just a chain of title. Going back and forth. Uh, yes. Um, my question is, as a patent attorney, do you still practice, and if so, why? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's something that you. I, I I'm a patent attorney as well. I, I used to practice in D.C. Um, and I had a conversation with my, with my boss about this issue and brought it up as far as well, why do we still have patent law? And, and we worked, we did patent work one of the largest chemical companies, so we were a patent shop for them, just cranking out lots of applications mm-hmm. for them to. Mm-hmm. Any, anybody else? Mm-hmm. You work for a large firm. You work for small clients, and this is a this is an issue that I'm grappling mm-hmm. with. Well, well um, the question was, uh, am I a patent attorney practicing now, and why do I do it, um, and how can you justify this? Um, I am a general counsel for a company, and uh, I handle all of their legal matters. And about five percent of what I do is IP, um, and most of that is acquiring an occasional patent. Um, um, our company acquires patents for purely defensive reasons. That's our explicit policy. Um, I don't think I would participate in a patent uh, a lawsuit on the plaintiff's side. But in my opinion, um, in, in today's system, well, first of all, this is an ethical question, and I don't claim to be an expert on this. Uh, but I, I did write an extensive blog post a few weeks ago on my blog uh, responding to a similar question that was emailed to me. Uh, so you can find it on my blog. But um, my position is that, um, uh, like a gun, a gun can be used for good or evil, right? So merely having a gun or buying a gun is not unlibertarian. It's unlibertarian to use it in the wrong way. Uh, a- acquiring a patent in today's system, in my opinion, is not unlibertarian because merely having a patent is not harming anyone. It, uh, not, it's not aggressing against anyone. It would, it would be aggression to use it offensively against someone, in my opinion. However, most patents that are acquired are either never used or asserted, as you probably know, um, and they're held sort of a porcupine defense, we call it. It's just to keep the other guy from suing you. Okay? So it's to sue someone back if they sue you for patent infringement, which I would completely support and do. If someone sued my company, I have, we have a large arsenal of patents, and I would sue them back. It's a big waste of money that we spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars getting a patent, and so do all of our competitors, just so that we don't sue each other. <laughs> um, but what it does is it keeps the small companies um, from competing because they don't have the resources to have a big portfolio. And so basically it's, it's, it's part of the same old game of the big companies or the more well-funded companies uh, in a sense getting a slightly mon- monopolistic advantage, um, uh, similar to the way they do with with with. Uh, with uh, uh, pro-union legislation and minimum wage laws. Um, so th- that's, my, that's my main take on it, um, although I, I, find the, I do find the practice a little bit distasteful. Uh, yes, in the back. One problem is uh, why couldn't an insurer draft a bunch of titles in a property and someone could say, well, I homesteaded this property, and they could say, well, we have the title to it. They could draft a title before the property. But how would a law court settle that title and they couldn't prove you know, the one person who claims he hires. Yeah, okay, so the question is sort of a question of uh, uh, how would you prove your title and uh, what's to prevent insurance companies from counterfeiting property titles. Um, I'm not sure why you think insurance companies would be the ones that would be doing this. I mean, someone could counterfeit a title to a property, uh, or not really counterfeit, they could print a title to a property that's not been homesteaded yet. Is that what you mean, property that's not yeah. been? Well, I just don't think printing a piece of paper is, counts as an act of homesteading. 
you know, it's just, I mean, I, I, could, I could print one right now that says, I hereby declare I own the moon. Well, I think it would be difficult to prove uh, for the Indians to prove. But if in a if, so, it's a it's a contingent question. If in a particular case, uh, some American a Native American could could prove to the court that his ancestor did have had homesteaded this piece of property, then I, I think he should be able to get it back. Um, let me take one in the back. Yes, the question is: Am I familiar with the status of a lodial title in the United States? I I, I think I'm familiar with what you're asking. Um, I, I mean, there's a guy named John Coben who is a libertarian, and he's elodialism is his big thing. Um, I've never understood the value of the concept, to be honest. To me, it just means ownership. Elodial means uh, complete ownership without any restraint. Um, there is no elodial ownership in America today. I mean, the government is basically the overlord of the property, literally. In fact, um, in the feudal systems, in, in, in say in England, the king is the overlord of all property, right? And then there's land, different feudal landlords and people down the chain. Um, that's why the, the the concepts we use nowadays and mostly in America um, for property are so strange and convoluted. We talk about fee simple ownership and all these bizarre feudal terms. Um, when America uh, left Britain, mistakenly. Um, <laughs> This, most of the states enacted statutes declaring um, uh, the overlord status of the king to be at an end. It's actually there's a book by Cornelius Moynihan that talks about this, and, and um, there was a, there's two or three states where they explicitly declared the state to be the overlord to step into the place of the king's shoes. So actually, in those states, the state is still the overlord technically of the land, but as a practical matter, the state is overlord now. I mean, the state to pro to tax your property to have property taxes is claiming some kind of overlord status over the land. Um, so in my opinion, in being in favor of complete ownership of one's body and having uh, uh, settled rights in property one acquires, uh, I'm advocating what's essentially elodialism, but I don't think it exists today. Okay, sure. Uh, yes? Mm-hmm. So what's your question? <laughs> so the question is um, about copyleft and related types of licensing schemes, and I I don't understand your use of the word utility. What I don't understand what you mean by utility. What are you asking? Do, do you mean utilitarianism or do you mean utility patents? Oh, okay. All right, I'm, I'm with you. Well, so the question is. What's the, what's the motivation behind why people use these licenses? I mean, look, uh, I use now, and the Mises Institute uses now, a uh, similar type of license, a Creative Commons license. We use the, the most open one that exists that, that we think is legally enforceable. There, there's one, it's, it's basically a Creative Commons uh, share. I mean, uh, no, it's, it's Creative Commons uh, attribution, attribution only. So basically, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's, there are more restrictive ones like uh, Creative Commons uh, attribution uh, share alike or attribution non-commercial only. Uh, so we use the most open one possible. There's some others that are a little bit more open in theory, uh, CC0 or public domain, but uh, these are not uh, guaranteed to actually work in most countries or, or all countries. Um, it took me a while to understand this, uh, but basically a license is permission. Okay, Permission only needs to be granted by someone who has the right to stop you from doing something. So a license just means you're getting permission from someone who can stop you from doing what you're getting permission to do. Um, without copyright, so in other words, all these licensing schemes require there to be copyright. Now, copyleft is more like the share alike, and I don't like, personally don't like copyleft because it's almost like a, a nerdy libertarian way to try to force people to be like us, you know? And so it's like saying, uh, you can use my stuff, but only if you make everyone else do you know, it's, it's like putting. It's, it's actually using the power of copyright to make someone do something. Uh, and one problem with this, especially for writing, in my opinion, is that um, let's say you publish an article like in our journal Libertarian Papers, and if we were to do the copyleft or the share alike, um, some publisher who wanted to include this paper in a book might not include it because they're a commercial publisher and they're just not going to do that because they're not going to agree to impose those kind of Creative Commons or copyleft provisions on other people. 
So you're actually going to get your papers left out. If you do the Creative Commons uh, sh uh, attribution only, well, all they have to do is put your name on and they're going to do that anyway. So we want our ideas out there. Um, I think I, I read, I think it's in a really good podcast with McKelly Boldrin and Russell Roberts. Um, he mentioned that uh, uh, Bill Gates had a comment that if, uh, if there had been software patents, there'd be, no, there'd be no Microsoft now. I mean, it would, it would, it would be, it'd be a nightmare. Um, now, it's it's a little little bit boring technical stuff in my opinion for most people unless you happen to be interested. But the distinction between patent and copyright, how they affect uh, software, is a different issue. I mean, copyright covers basically your code, what how it's written, and patents could apply to some of it. Uh, the, the, all these licensing schemes are primarily uh, copyright based and related to copyright. Um, yes, sir. Okay, interesting question. Um, as an anarchist, how do you handle the problem of enforcing property rights in an anarchist society against people who would otherwise trespass against your rights or not respect them? Um, I mean, that's really beyond the scope of this talk, um, and I don't claim to be the biggest expert on that. Um, that's more uh, security theory, production and security theory. Um, and I would just say that you know, if we ever reach an anarchist society, it's because most people are already convinced of anarchy or of libertarian principles. That's how we're going to get there. So you're always going to have a marginal number of, of criminals. And um, in, in one of my favorite uh, phrases uh, by Hoppe, I believe, that's um, just a technical problem. Um, you know, how to, deal, how to deal with these guys. I mean, it's a problem like any other problem in life. I mean, how do you fight off cancer? And how do you, um, how do you build a bridge? How do you come up with ways of killing bad guys? You know, uh, Now, there's a lot of theory on this and articles on this. And I would just have to point you to that. There's on the Lou Rockwell website uh, under the archives, there is a really good uh, bibliography section, and there's a really good one on anarcho-capitalist literature that Hoppe prepared, and there are some other ones on there too. I would, I would just point you to some of those articles. Yes? I just kind of wanted to give my own opinion on his question, the one they mentioned about fraud. For one, I think in a completely free market, ones that would, for instance, give a contract fraudulently say, and also I think even in the case, like I know some people who are Nicholas, I think even though war or, or we're all because they, you know, are going to value not getting themselves, even though they're clean. Um, that's good. You know, that praxeological principles are about, and they themselves be working. So it won't be like a hot craziness where everyone's. Okay, I, I can't. In my, in my opinion, I can't. Uh, I agree with that. I can't. I can't summarize the whole comment, but it was a comment on the question earlier, which I just remembered. I didn't really answer um, about fraudulent property titles. Um, in addition to your question about uh, fake property titles that are titles to things that have not been homesteaded. Um, you, I, just try not to get hung up on the word title. People get a little bit legalistic and mechanistic about things, and they think of a contract or a title as a, a piece of paper. It's not. Title just means the right to own, in my opinion. Okay, so if you print up a title, you're not printing up a title. You're printing up a piece of paper that claims you own it. I believe in a free market, just like in today's society, um, you would have established ways of showing your, of demonstrating or proving your ownership of property. Um, especially for real property or land or immovable property. I mean, you wouldn't want to take a chance that someone would contest it and that in the ensuing court trial you might lose because you didn't have a good way of showing you owned it. So I think there would be a reason for you to pay a little fee to some kind of uh, independent registration agency and register your claim. And then over time, I think that would become a de facto um, evidentiary method used to prove title. And if someone printed up, just printed up a title, you would just go compare it to the records in this established property I title office and you would lose. Yes? So the question is, if even though uh, contracts could not be used to uh, approximate patents, could they be used to approximate copyright? And uh, ironically, this was Rothbard's view, even though he was a proponent of the title transfer theory contract. Uh, it was a really tentative section. I, don't, I, th I, think, he was, I think he just made a mistake. Uh, I think he wasn't thinking clearly. Rothbard basically argued that, um, well, first of all, he gave the example of a mousetrap, brown and green, and I forget the other colors. But <laughs> so he said, what if you, know, you, you sell a mousetrap and you stamp it copyright? Now, then he, he comes up with an argument to try to show that this would prevent not only the buyer but also a third party, I think green, um, from using it. Uh, well, first of all, copyright, and the, the, copyright is... is, is is, uh, is used to protect original expression, original creative expression, like novels, poems, software, movies, things like that. Patents are used to protect 
um, uh, innovative, practical functioning ideas, uh, uh, methods and, and devices. And if you know anything about how these systems work, I mean, there's a reason there, there are two different statutory schemes. They're pretty much unrelated. In fact, I agree with a lot of the critics of IP who don't like the term intellectual property. But again, I, I think that's fighting the wrong battle to focus on semantics. But they have, what they object to is unifying these different things under the same umbrella because they are different. But my point is they are so different that it makes no sense to treat one like the other. And Rothbard is trying to use copyright to protect an invention. Now, patents is what applies to that. So he says he's against patent, but then he uses copyright to protect what patents do cover. I mean, to me, that shows he wasn't really familiar with how all this worked. But the, the mistake he made, I believe, was he said um, he, he, he thinks of rights as being a bundle of rights. And so if I own a mousetrap, I have the right to the design, whatever that means, and I have the right to the physical object I produce, and I sell only the object to my buyer, and I retain the right to copy. Okay? So it's like he's envisioning the mousetrap with this kind of mystical right to copy compartment empty. Right? And so if, if Brown has it, he's just holding a mousetrap that doesn't have a right to copy with it. So Green, if Green sees it, there's just no way Green can get the right to copy from it. And you can see that this just makes no sense whatsoever. I think the same way. I, I don't think any of them can be covered by any kind of. Uh, I don't think any of them uh, could uh, uh, pr be protected with respect to third parties by any kind of contract system. Um, and I mean, just imagine an example of you know, you have a neighbor who's watching a copyrighted movie on his television, but he leaves his windows open, and you know, you're looking out and you you see, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz playing by, and you kind of get the idea. Oh, there's Dorothy, and there's so you kind of learn of the plot just by watching across the street. All you've gained is information. Now, you haven't signed a contract with anyone. You're not trespassing. So why can't I write, oh, I think I want to write uh, Stephen Kinsella's uh, uh, Further Adventures of Dorothy. Why not? But under current law, you can't do it because that's a derivative right. Uh, yes? Um, do you think that the uh, ability to be, the, be able to make a profit can be another Competitors enter the market copying your product. Do you think that's still going to be in creative items like music, television, music, um, movies? Still like a viable. Product? Well, so the question is, would the would the f being first to market in the absence of a copyright system be be enough to uh, uh, enough of an advantage to stimulate to incentivize people to produce books and movies and, and music? And I mean, of course, of course, because I mean, b before we had copyright law, there were books and there was music. So we clearly would have some. Now, will we have the same amount? Will we have more? Will we have less? Will we have a different type? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I tend to think some things would change. I think that music, I mean, music would tend to be, music and books would probably be tend, for a lot of people, tend to be given out uh, for free as PR advertising for the person. They would make their money in other ways, on the speaking circuit or live concerts or by selling, you know, an autographed copy of a CD with a special a thing with it and things like that. And th that's already happening a little bit right now. Um, but, I mean, basically the question is, would it be enough? Not would there be any, right? So you can't say would there be any. Obviously there would be some. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we, we write articles for free. People here that blog on blogs, you're not getting paid for that. You do it for free and people get to see it. So there's, there's going to be some of this done. <coughs> and I don't think that uh, it's the province of, uh, of uh, libertarianism to decide how much is enough. Now, for example, even in today's society, uh, there are costs of exclusion, for example. Um, drive-in movie theaters, I don't know if you, you've heard this story before, but drive-in movie theaters adopted the little speakers that go up next to every car to prevent free, free, li free riders from sitting on the, on the road next to it and just watch, because you can see it, right? It's, uh, it's out in the open. And if they had big speakers blaring it out, then you could have a bunch of free riders watching. So they had to spend money to put in speakers by every car, which don't sound as good probably, and as, as their exclusion cost, and they're still in business, or some, some are still in business. Um, even even the, the ticket changer and the doors are means of exclusion, right? If you could just trust everyone to be honest, then you wouldn't have to charge a ticket. You would just say, you know, only, only go in if you pay. But instead, you lock your doors, and you have a little guy at the counter, and you have to pay them a salary, right? So there, there's costs of exclusion in almost every type of business. And it's up to the uh, creativity of the uh, of the entrepreneur and the businessman to figure out the best way to do it. And if there's some type of endeavor for which the exclusion costs are too high, 
then he shouldn't be in that business. He shouldn't do it. It's not, it's not economically efficient. Uh, yes? Okay. I, I mean, so you really your question is, your question is just an interpretation of contract. You're saying, how do you interpret contracts where, you know, if A sells a book to B and makes B agree not to let anyone see it, then uh, how do you construe whatever provision is in there um, as coming in, uh, if, if, if B lets C see it? I mean, I think that's just, that's just a question of, is there a breach of contract? And so I, you may, you'd have to show me the provision. Now, my personal view is these, these kind of contracts wouldn't be used that much because, first of all, the seller knows that it's not going to work very well against third parties. It's going to leak. It's just got to leak once, and then you're, then you're, then you're doomed. Um, and also, I don't think you're going to waste time on drafting provisions that are unenforceable and hard to enforce. Okay, So um, I think basically it's, uh, th- there's a really good expression. I think it was, um, it's, it's in a Wendy McElroy article, which is a really good article about copyright. Um, she quotes, I think, Benjamin Tucker, I think. And the idea is, you know, if you want to, if if you want to keep keep an idea, um, if you want to protect your idea, keep it to yourself, <laughs> you know. But if once you release it, it's known. I mean, this is public, inf- you know, it's information. And so, if you're selling a product that is basically a lot of the value of it is in the information, you know, that's the risk you take by selling it, and you have to find other ways to make money. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, I'll do you since I haven't asked you. Yeah. So the question is, um, how is knowledge economically classified as scarce means or scarce goods or not? And um, I mean, I think clearly it's not. It's almost the paradigm example of a, of a non-scarce resource. Uh, a scarce, a scarce good is, is it, it, by scarcity we do not mean just not very abundant. Uh, we just we mean that it's contestable, really. That that only one person can use it at a time. That one that one person's use excludes. It means rivalrous, basically. One person's use excludes another's. Okay. Yeah, I think actually there's a, there's a good comment by Guido in one of his early Guido Hilsman in one of his early pieces about, and he just has an offhand comment about how knowledge is used to inform action. I mean, it's it's what we do when we act. We use knowledge to 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 make to uh to act. Um, and actually, there's a good comment in the Michele Boldrin podcast I mentioned earlier. He talks about how um, he actually denies that uh, that he denies that that it's really easy to spread a lot of this knowledge. Like abstract knowledge, you know, two plus two is four. That's fine. But he, he gives the example. Why is he's an economics professor? Why is he paid to teach? I mean, he's teaching things that are in thousands of books, have been known for a long time, but he's still being paid to teach it because he's got sort of a practical knowledge about how to teach it to people, right? You can't easily communicate that. Um, so, no, I think knowledge is clearly not a serious good. And I think one way to see this is, you know, if you have a book and you have a stick, and I homestead this stick, it doesn't do anything to your book, right? Doesn't, my homesteading this unowned stick doesn't trespass against your physical book. But if you were to homestead a scarce, uh, an idea, if it were scarce, it would give you the right to control that other person's paper. So, but that's scarce too. So how could they conflict like that? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Scarce goods don't interfere with each other when you homestead one of them. And ideas would. Well, okay. No more time for any questions. The question was, would research disappear in the absence of IP? And the answer is just no. Thank you.